Welcome to another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella, alongside Kelly marketing professor, Kim Saxton. For those who are new to the show, we want to welcome you to the Kelly family. Our show's mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. For those who continue to support our show with your time, we want to thank you for helping us grow. In just over a year, we have more than doubled our reach with listeners, and it's all because of you and finding value in our content enough to share with your friends and family. If you have a specific leadership question you want us to cover, or you want to share some ideas on how we can improve, send us an email to ROIPod. That's R-O-I-P-O-D at IUPUI.edu. Well, on today's episode, we are going to conclude our three-part series on the business of healthcare. In honor of Kelly's brand new graduate certificate in medical management program, which kicks off September 2019, we decided to pull back the curtain inside healthcare to gain greater wisdom of each decision made and why. On this episode, we sat down with the System Chief Nursing Officer of St. Vincent Health, Cindy Adams, tackling a tough question. Is the focus of healthcare in business or is the focus in healthcare people? Good morning, Cindy. I'm so glad that you could join us. And I have to tell you that last night I was teaching a class with medical school students, so first years, and um, we were talking about quality and process quality and identifying errors and things like that. And um, one of the students kind of looked at me a little strangely and said, you know, I'm struggling because... I want to be a doctor because I want to care for people. I think that's the most important thing for healthcare providers. But now I'm learning all this business stuff and I I'm, don't know how to put it all together. So what do you think? Is healthcare a business or is healthcare simply about caring for people or is it somewhere in between? It's a great question. So as a nurse of 37 years, um, I spent my first 10 years in the critical care unit where I would physically run from any conversation about insurance or cost or the business side of things. I focused completely on the patient and the family and what would um, be necessary to return that person to optimal health. So I've been in that space where I'm frustrated. I went into this profession to take care of people and don't bother me with the business side of things. That was 37 years ago um, since I have become a nurse practitioner and practiced in that provider space. And now as an executive, um, there, as you can imagine, is no running from the healthcare business conversations. And so um, we, are, we are deeply steeped in business. Not only do we have to be very smart about how we can sustain our own business, but we are facing be, being disrupted by big mega business tech giant type uh, players in the industry. So it's more important now than ever. Um, back in the early 90s, I was asked as a nurse practitioner to design and implement a chronic disease management program for heart failure. Oh. Um, at that moment, it was starting to emerge that we were not going to get paid. We'd be penalized for readmissions within 30 days. So there was a lot of interest at the national level of, you know, how do we kind of bend the trajectory of care utilization for these patients with chronic disease? So we set up a program and um, it was 
very successful. A year into it, we were taking care of 99 heart failure patients on the outpatient side, and we had had only one admission for heart failure. That's impressive. Very impressive. We were so excited. I could visually see confetti falling from the ceiling. I danced down to the chief operating officer, chief financial officer's office and said, look what we did. Here is our data. And I watched the color drain from their face as they said, how many hospital days have you eliminated? Because we were getting paid for people being in the hospital for heart failure. And so that was the first conversation where I ever heard the sentence, no margin, no mission, or the phrase, no margin, no mission. And I, you know, here I was doing what I was asked to do, focusing on what's right for people. And I was reducing some hospital revenue, which was then in 1995, kind of horrifying. Right. But I think today, a lot of people feel like um, in that same scenario, you might hear different reaction. Right. There's been a lot of um, evolution of the value proposition and the payment for value and a lot of um, uh, infrastructure put in place to reward high quality care. Right. So we are seeing more um, financial um, incentive to do the right thing, but um, there's still a, a lot of change that's required. I've spent the last, I'd say, 20 years of my career watching us try to cut our way to profitability. Mm -hmm. And I think now uh, very much in the last five to 10 years, we've been seeing a call to disrupt and innovate our way into sustainability. Again, competing with tech giants and others in the industry that we never thought we would be competing with. So it's a very, very challenging time from a business perspective. And we're talking about surviving and not necessarily, you know, an optimal profit margin. Right. So I'm curious what you would tell yourself if you could have gone back to those first, you, you figured it out after 10 years, but what would you have told yourself when you were maybe four to five years into your, your first role? Uh, four to five years into my first role would have been critical care um, I, I'm not sure I would have done anything different in that era because I was completely focused on the clinical execution and, and that delivery of that quality. I might have told myself um, to be aware that later in my career, um, our success is going to hinge on those frontline caregivers having an awareness and an acumen around um, uh, the business side of things and what small levers you can pull to make big impact in terms of cost reduction and financial uh, sustainability. So I think knowing that that was going to come could have saved me um, some frustration mm -hmm. and knowing that I was going to have to take the bitter pill of understanding the business side as a young clinician might have set my expectations differently. Um, and, and clearly uh, as I have, um, matured in the industry, it's been very, very clear to me that as we position clinicians who are really strong clinicians in leadership roles, that just because we put a badge on them that says they're a leader doesn't mean they come with the kind of acumen they need to run a business, which any any unit right. in a hospital or physician practice or anywhere is a business unit. Yeah, I doubt that they even think that they have product profit line responsibility. They think of themselves as managing people mm -hmm. as opposed to the whole cost structure. Agree. Mm -hmm. So how do you think that people in those positions, those new frontline leadership roles, um, should 
should learn about business? How do they do that? Are they being mentored? Do you all have programs? Are you, what do you do with them? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and I would like to tell you that we have solid programs that help people transition from clinical practice to clinical leadership. And, and I would, I would not, I would be misleading you. So we depend heavily on our academic partnerships to provide opportunities to advance um, the knowledge that people need to be successful. One thing I want to touch on, kind of going back to, you you know, building the case of which exists, you know, is this a, a business or is this about, you know, people? And listening to your answer, it kind of sounds like there's both cultures at play at the same time. And it seems like both are competing for one another. You know, you have the frontline healthcare providers and physicians and everyone in that world really focusing on people. And then you have a lot of the admin people, you know, a lot of the financial people making sure that the lights are on, that the supplies are filled and that there's everything there, you know, so where has that disruption started, you know, being where, look, we need to really put a lot of focus on people because ultimately this is a people industry. Yeah, it's a great question. So um, in healthcare, we talk about the quadruple aim and that is providing high, exceptionally high quality of care, safe care at minimum, and with a, the right cost, low cost, and the right experience for patients and families and also providers. And in that quadruple aim, I am seeing um, 20 years ago, a lot of the change management and performance improvement was targeted on quality. That has literally, in my opinion, become table stakes. I mean, you're, you're not even a you're not even a player if you're not providing the highest quality of care. And right now, we are talking a lot about all the components, including the experience component. You have to provide an excellent experience for patients and families and providers. But I can tell you the thing that I think is driving the most change in healthcare is the financial piece. And so with that being the major factor, that kind of leads back into understanding that the finances on both sides, whether you're frontline, you need to understand what decisions you make impact the financial flow versus the admin side that, you know, they needed to figure out how to get the finances in order. So how is that impacting frontline healthcare providers and frontline healthcare professionals? Yeah, another good question. One of the things that we're doing to try to, um, uh, drive improvement across the quadruple aim is daily conversations in every single business unit in the organization talking about those few critical metrics that we're trying to drive quality you know on the clinical side always one of those but but also length of stay as an example and um, and throughput as another example heavily hits those frontline employees and so it's up to the leaders in those departments to hold those critical conversations every single day here's what we're trying to drive for here's how we're doing where are the gaps how are we going to get better at doing this? And it very much affects or should be affecting every member of the organization on a daily basis. So I'm curious how comfortable folks get with those numbers. I mean, as a business school professor, of course, we always advocate metrics and measurement and identifying the key performance indicators and monitoring them and identifying improvement opportunities. But, um, that's a really easy conversation for people who are sitting in the business school because they've taken finance and accounting and operations and all of those things. How do those frontline managers 
reconcile that? How do they feel as you do that? It varies by individual. So some of our frontline managers have been back to school and gotten their MBA and have a higher comfort level with talking about the business metrics and not only talking about them, but choosing that, right. you know, what are we going to focus on? And um, the continuum then spans clear to the other side, which is, you know, people, again, we put a name badge on that says you're the leader and they've never had any formal education or preparation to help them prepare for that. So they get it on the job, they get it on the fly, um, but not, you know, not like our leaders who have actually had some formal preparation in that space. And it's it's kind of a taboo thing when you say, you know, healthcare and then, you know, big drivers finance, especially if you're sitting in the patient seat because you think, oh, well, all they want to do is, you know, make just make money off of me. And they don't see me as a person. They see me as, you know, dollar signs potentially, you know, so what's that line for you? You know, how, do, how does the financial piece be a foundation yet at the same time, the patient care and what's best for the patient be the driving factor for you? Um, you know, especially in where you sit, because that's a really tough, tough line to navigate. It's a very complicated balance. So I am involved currently, I have the pleasure uh, to be involved with um, uh, some very intensive innovation um, initiatives. And in that work, we're trying to really dial in on what's important to the consumer. And as we do that, it becomes painfully obvious to me that the way we've set up healthcare delivery has been designed around what we get paid for, not what we can delight the consumer by. The other complicating factor that comes in there are all the regulations. So many, many times as I, it's dawned on me as a pr practitioner and provider, gosh, wouldn't it be great if we could do this for patients? My legal colleagues will come in and say, sure, that'd be great, but it's against the law. So, you know, there are constraints from not only the financial and quality side, but also the legal and regulatory side about things you can and cannot do when you're trying to provide uh, and an exceptional experience of care and a, an exceptional consumer experience in the context of this really complex healthcare dynamic. Yeah, one of the things I've noticed as a potential national trend, um, that patient experience and that patient engagement is really a hot topic for healthcare providers. And I was amazed that at least one healthcare provider, not in the state of Indiana, but um, in another state, has now offered a, um, a refund. If you're not satisfied, they have an app. You go in and you tells you what your copay was, and you tell them how much of your copay you want back because of your dissatisfaction. Do you think that's going to be the new norm? Well, that's a fascinating idea, and it may be. Um, I I I don't want to throw my own industry under the bus, but I think I'd have to admit that it's challenging enough for us to just, you know get a bill sent out that's accurate and, and track and make sure we're getting paid for the work that we do to throw in, gosh, we want to refund to people who aren't satisfied would just completely throw a, a wrench into the whole process. I'm not sure that we even have the infrastructure that would allow us to consider something like that. But to your point, I'm speaking, my, sure. my reflex answer to that is kind of steeped in where we've always been, which cannot be where we're going to be in two years from now. So we've got to get a lot smarter about meeting consumer demands. Uh, the healthcare industry is, 
I want to say 15 years behind the rest of the business world when it comes to consumer orientation and services, uh, service level for consumers. And so we have to really, really change that. And to be fair, they started a quality initiative like 10 years prior and created a lot of treatment protocols and guidelines and, and knew what metrics, you know, could be improved and enhanced before they offered that guarantee or they mm-hmm. would have gone out of business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, true. Yeah, true. That's true. You know, if you don't have enough quality for that. And what I thought was also interesting, though, here's your challenge, is that the number, the three main complaints that people wanted refunds for were the quality of the food, the amount of the wait time, and the noise level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have found, we believe I think in our day-to-day operations, we believe that consumers coming in to access health care assume that you're providing high-quality care or you wouldn't be in the business. Yeah. And, that, and We could talk then the rest of the day about whether that's a valid um, assumption, but I do think that consumers, when they access care, assume that you're going to provide high-quality, safe care or they right. wouldn't be there. Right. And so we do hear the complaints kind of back toward the experiential parts and Access, ease of access is a big, big one. And then some of the amenities like food and noise and things like that are, are clearly players as well. Well, you know, uh, we've had a, uh, an MBA program for physicians for the last six years, and um, I have taught marketing in there. And I um, have asked them sort of looking at some big marketing funnel, like where is the biggest challenge? Is it in creating awareness with consumers? Or is it actually, you know, at the buying stage or the repeat stage? And I've been a little dismayed that the number one problem that I've seen across time, and it looks like it's getting bigger, is the amount of time it takes to access the doctor, that Mm -hmm. the waits to actually get care are now dramatically increasing, and particularly in some specialties, Mm -hmm. upwards of 60 and 80 days from the time you have a problem to the time you can get in. That's right. What can we do about that? Yeah, so this is something we've all been talking about for, again, at least 10 years. I don't know when the first person uttered the word access, but it was a long time ago. And, And again, in trying to balance that quadruple aim, you want provider experience. You don't want to work your physicians 24 hours a day. Nobody would want to come here and work. Yet the consumer needs access at 1030 on a Friday night when the problem occurs. You can't schedule your broken leg, right? Well, that one's easy. You go to the ED. But the whole myriad of things between clear ED cases and this can wait till Monday morning, we're, we're expecting consumers to be able to make that decision and then choose the right location of care. And it is too complex even for someone in the healthcare industry to figure that out. So we've got to get a lot smarter at the kinds of things that we offer. I think virtual care is is something that is clearly disrupting the industry, but I've been very surprised at the slow uptake of virtual encounters we've offered for the last two years through St. Vincent Ascension and an on-demand virtual care visit. You know, for $49, you can get sit on your sofa and have an a visit with with a provider. It's not your provider. It calls into question is the relationship with your primary provider as important as it was 40 years ago. So we're exploring that. But I would have thought this would have hit a tipping point and just gone, you know, it, gone crazy 
Um, and the truth of the matter is, it's a very low utilization. We're trying to figure out, do people not understand? Do consumers not really want this? Because on one hand, they don't want to wait for 60 days to see their doctor. On the other hand, they're not hitting go and seeing a provider right now in the comfort of their own home. So we're still trying to explore what do people really want. So it seems like, you know, kind of as we begin to end our conversation that there are just so many factors. It's like a whole culture shift and a whole culture change from regulations at the you know highest government levels um, to the way you know doctors, physicians, nurses, all the front li- front um, line healthcare professionals are being trained and what they're being trained with. There's like this major disruption that I think we're at that crossroad where it is beginning to be. We need to make a decision: either we stay and we get left behind, or we jump on the front end and we take off. So, you know, from, from your perspective and with who you manage, you know, those frontline um, healthcare professionals, what is going to be the most important things for this next generation and these, these next groups going forward that are going to bring us to this place of um, receiving quality care and having the, you know, receiving the financial means to keep the hospital moving in the direction it needs to? Innovation. Because I, I promise you the successful model is not going to be the model we've had in place for dozens of years. Um, so along with innovation, I think a requisite to that is you understand the business model. You understand the financial context, the regulatory context, so that you can innovate within the constraints and not get yourself in trouble or go out of business at the same time balancing that with what's currently in place today, which is still largely fee for service, you know, design the model around how you can get paid, which as a clinician has been very frustrating, as you can imagine. Um, so innovation, another requisite to that, other than I think understanding that how the business works um, is is a, a love of change. I think not a, necessarily a tolerance of change. That would have been what I might have said 15 years ago. You're going to have to get comfortable with this. I think for a successful future, we have to love change. We have to love learning what's working and not working and pivoting to meet the needs of consumers, payers, all of the stakeholders in the industry. Gosh, I'm really struck. It's, it's in so many industries, what we're hearing is, be ready to experiment and change based on the results that you see. We're becoming a more data-driven society, I think, across all sectors because we can learn what has an effect and we can look at and see what's not working and be ready to turn off things that aren't working, even if that's how we've always done it. Mm-hmm. Agree. Well, thanks so much for taking time. It's it, it's really eye-opening to hear how you're looking at the bigger picture because, of course, we are consumers of healthcare who are studying healthcare and you're living healthcare. And bringing that all together is just really fascinating. Thank you very much for the opportunity. It's so fun to sit and talk with you about it and explore ways that we can partner with the business community to uh, really strengthen the future of healthcare. We appreciate the opportunity. <laughs> This has been another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella, alongside Kelly Marketing Professor Kim Saxton. Our mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. We'll see you next week.